Welcome to the She Matters podcast, a podcast about sexual violence activism, healing, and community by survivors, for survivors, and allies. In this space, we challenge injustices facing survivors from an intersectional lens while sharing inspiring stories of survivors and advocates who are paving the way for positive change. Today we are joined by Christy Pishakis. She is the founder of SOAR Initiative and one of our close allies and friends at She Matters. Welcome, Christy. Hi, thanks for having me. So Christy, can you tell us a little bit more about how you landed in the world of gender-based violence advocacy? Share a little bit more about the SOAR Initiative and your experiences that led you to creating this new nonprofit organization. So I am a librarian and branch head at a Toronto Public Library branch. I have been working with the Toronto Public Library system for 24 years. And in that role, I am consistently working with youth and children and people with um, from vulnerable backgrounds, newcomers, uh, seniors, those with disabilities, um, unhoused citizens. So we have a trust that the customers build with the teams at their local library branches. In that, one of my very first experiences as a young librarian was having a teenager come into the branch and asking for a book, a teen fiction book that had to deal with some form of social issue. And I just started walking through the aisle with her and came across Speak by Lori Halsell Anderson. And I told her what it was about. I let her know about the social issue that's in it. And she seemed a bit hesitant at first. So I pulled off another book for her as well and said, why don't you read, you know, the first paragraph or two and see how you feel about it. And whichever one you choose, that's the one, whichever one you connect to the most is the best one. So she ended up taking Speak. Probably about four weeks later, she came back to the branch to speak to me and told me that the reason she was hesitant to take it out is because she had been sexually assaulted herself, and this was her first time disclosing to anyone. So this book gave her quite a bit of confidence to um, feel connected to someone who was around her age, who she felt... uh, Wow. She she felt that connection of not being able to tell anyone that no one would want to hear from her, no one would believe her, people would blame her. Um, so she was really thankful for this. It was obviously a very emotional conversation, but it was the first time that she had ever disclosed to anyone. And that means a lot. And it happens a lot with library workers in that customers will often find a trust with us and they want to share their stories or share um, something that is happening in their life or they come in for assistance for a service or um, having us help them call um, another service if possible or connect them with them. So it's, it's a weird way that I sort of found my way into this, but it is a cause that I have always been very passionate about. I just never really knew how to get started into it. And it, sort of fell by the wayside because of um, other life choices that I had made. And 
um, I sort of found my way back to it during the pandemic. Funny enough, <laughs> I was I was approached um, by the Project Engage four one six, which is a pilot project with the Toronto Police and the Integrated Gang Task Force, and they were going around to the northwest quadrant of the city of Toronto where they are heavily impacted by gang violence, by gang recruitment. And with that also comes sexual violence and sex trafficking, human trafficking. And we had uh, gone to a few town halls right before everything shut down in March of 2020. So later in that year, um, the one of the detectives had reached out asking if I wanted to join the table for the neighborhood team as part of the library representatives and I agreed to it. I had gone and listened to a number of um, virtual meetings in which they were talking about human trafficking, sex trafficking. And in that, I discovered that there have been so many teenagers that we know that have come into the library who we suspected something was happening with them being possibly uh, taking advantage of in terms of them being young girls and hanging around with these older boys, but we never really knew what it was or how to properly approach it. And in this case, we started realizing that it was it's a form of sex trafficking. And a lot of the times it's what's the Romeo pimps. So it's pulling these young girls in and having them feel that they are Mm -hmm. dating these boys that are interested in them, these older boys, not realizing that they're being groomed. And it's it breaks wow. your heart. So I have all of these connections that I'm seeing from working in this public space with a lot of these populations and a lot of these teens and children. And it really pushed me to want to continue forward with the um, advocacy for sexual violence and um, obviously anything to do with grooming and consent. And from that, I happened to just be watching, cut to a year later, I was watching um, I Am Evidence. And I was very curious. Yeah, so I was watching that again. I hadn't seen it in quite a few years. And I started questioning, I wonder what our backlog is here in Canada. Obviously, our population is so different from the States. We're much smaller. But I was curious as to how it would, how it would look compared to the States. Did we have a backlog? What is being done about it? And as I researched, I stumbled upon the She Matters article that came up on the report of the Sexual Assault Evidence Kit's accessibility in Canada and her lack thereof, I should say. And it just, I was blown away that this was something that wasn't even available at every hospital. And knowing that I work in, in a quadrant of the city of Toronto that it's not easy to access downtown where there are three centers available for sexual assault, domestic violence care centers, which would be Women's College, um, Hospital for Sick Children, and the Scarborough Birchmount campus. Those are not easy to access for many of the community members in okay. the northwest quadrant of the city. So those that really stuck with me. And in that way, I reached out to the detective that I worked with, with Project Engage 416. And she and I had started trying to collaborate. How are we going to get these kits into the closest hospital, which would be the Humber River Regional Hospital? And that's essentially how it started. And then 
A year after that, I started the SAEK Accessibility Initiative, which is an absolute mouthful, and I didn't think it through when I created it. <laughs> and obviously reached out to you at She Matters. And um, I also work with the Acumen Group. So a lot of things were coming down the pipe of wanting to push for social media presence, and that's how that was created. And obviously now, one year after that, um, I am working towards getting this as a nonprofit organization. And it is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And I get a bit, a bit emotional when I'm thinking about it. Definitely. I mean, it's been quite a journey. And I transparently did not even think about the layers of trust in the relationships built between mm -hmm folks who are working within the public library system and the individuals who are accessing your services, especially in the region that you're working in. But now that you've said it, it, it makes so much sense that that is a safe space for people within your community and within other communities across Canada as well. It really brings back to the topic of discussing consent and things like grooming with authority figures or role models that are adults that you have that relationship with and feel comfortable in disclosing your experiences with. So I'm really grateful that you've shared that story with us because I, I believe that a lot of people maybe don't know the impact of their role in survivors' lives um, when it comes to disclosures and being that safe space for people to open up. So that's very beautiful that that was one of your first sort of experiences as a young librarian. I know you're a, a very big Law & Order SVU fan as well. And the topic of sexual violence within gangs is something that's being discussed a lot more, especially in this most recent season. I know we have a lot of Law & Order SVU fans throughout the She Matters community, so it's very interesting to see how this applies in real life and that for maybe folks who are working within sectors where they are potentially a safe space for someone to understand the impact of every interaction with a young person really holds value. Um, so I'm, I'm, again, very grateful that you shared both your experiences just as a librarian and a branch manager, but also your experiences with and also with your work with Project Engage 416. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your role as a senior editor with the Acumen Group. And we're going to transition right into talking a little bit more about your most recent article that you just wrote for the group, which was titled The Long and Storied History of Rape Kits. Sure. So I was introduced to Dr. Chantella Sherman, who is the founder and editor of Acumen Magazine and um, of the Acumen Group. And it is an American-based nonprofit that charts the present-day use of eugenics from its historical origins and scientific theories to its social and pop culture manifestations. 
It also produces a quarterly magazine called Acumen that highlights its research. So they also conduct lectures and a lot of the focus that we work on within the Acumen group is pop EU is what she calls it. So pop eugenics. And the how I kind of fell into her realm was actually through another show, which is Coronation Street, which I'm not sure how many Oh, um, <laughs> don't know if that one's going to be as popular no. with our demographic. <laughs> Probably not. But uh, they have done quite a few storylines that have focused on sexual violence. Uh, one of them, I think their very first one was in 2001. Another was in 2011. And then they've done a few more throughout the years in the most recent years as well. Um, the one that okay. I had been focusing on recently and the one that really got me into the into Dr. Chantella Sherman's <laughs> um, sight lines, I guess, to say, was in March of 2020 when one of the characters had a psychotic break. She had suffered a psychotic break the year before, feeling that she was responsible for the death of another character who was um, her sister, half-sister's fiancé. It got to the stage where she started having, um, she underwent psychosis. So she started believing that the person who was killed was actually alive and haunting her. And you could see it on screen, her walking around without her shoes, her hearing voices. You saw a whole episode from her perspective where it was, it was really heartbreaking to watch. There was a point there that she had disappeared from the street and people were looking for her. And no one really knows what happened to her in that time frame, except that she was finding um, places to stay, but not really understanding how she managed to stay there or how she paid for it. Cut to a year later and into her recovery, a character from that time shows up and tries to blackmail her, stating that if she doesn't pay so much money, he is going to let everybody know that that she had sex with him in order to, and telling her fiance, telling her uh, boyfriend this. And of course it's piecing back to her what happened. And she is convinced that it was consensual because she agreed to it. And her boyfriend was sort of the voice of the audience as well, which is really powerful. And he said, no, this is rape. This is, you Mm -hmm. could not consent. You, you were not in the mental capacity to consent. And this storyline Believe it or not, many people watching this, many viewers were divided and saying, well, you know, this isn't really what rape is. And rape is, you know, this vi-, and they're still going with those stereotypical views of what rape is. And the this coercion didn't seem to fall into their realm, especially when it came to somebody who was undergoing a mental um, mental health break, really, like a psychotic episode. So Mm-hmm. One of the major blogs had posted up a review that caused quite a bit of uh, pushback Stir. from viewers. Yeah, where they had said, you know, she tells um, Peter, who is her her partner, that this was consensual, and they didn't clarify. They just said it's you know what it was. It was consensual. So I was not impressed. Um, This is a big blog with a lot of viewers. So I wrote a response piece to it and it was stating that, you know, this is not something that you're reading about where you can think, okay, well, what about the other side of the story? You know, we don't know the full thing. What exactly happened? Was she really suffering a psychotic break? Anything, you know, the questions that people will ask because 
the, you know, it, the, the chances of just mm-hmm. believing a survivor is just, you know, out of the question, right? <laughs> so we have to yeah. question it, right? So in this case, it's like, this is something you saw on screen. This is something you saw it play out. So if you're watching this, this to me is the equivalent of watching somebody who's barely able to stand because they are intoxicated, being taken out of a bar by someone who is sober with the intent of having sex with them and saying, well, they were flirting with me back here. It doesn't matter. They can't stand up right now. They can't consent. No. Like, and exactly, yeah. seeing that and saying, well, no, 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 it's, they were flirting with them before. So it's fine. <laughs> to me, I just, I couldn't abide by it. So I had to write a response and that's how I kind of got into her realm. And from there, we've been um, writing about other things with addiction and going into genetic, um, what you would see as eugenics. So things blaming uh, your genes for the way you are, the way that this character always feels that she's um, always wait, waiting to press a self-destruct button, that things are happening to her because of this. So it's a really interesting mm-hmm. dynamic. And from there, I started writing with her and then joined the team officially. So that's my role and my focus. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so my focus has been um, of the reproductive rights, sexual justice, and obviously access to rape kits and focusing also on pop culture, which would be mostly Law & Order SVU. We've had a few online talks about that as well, including the episode that was very, uh, the 500th episode which was about grooming and Mm -hmm. that one was and consent. And so that was something that we had discussed about as well. So yeah, that's my story of getting in with the acumen group and writing. And of course it led into this long article. Yeah. It's a weird way. You heard it here first friends. Sometimes we can channel our anger when we see these online pieces being written and write objectively and actually have it turn into something very positive. So that's awesome to hear. Yeah. (laughs) It's sad to say that unfortunately the blog never responded to it and never really corrected it. They, they edited it, but they didn't edit it in the way that it should have said this is, you know, obviously this was a case of her being taken advantage of that. This was rape. They didn't say that. They just said, he'll, he'll tell Peter about her behavior. And I'm like, Oh, come on, just fix it. (laughs) But well, uh, sometimes when the author does not understand the perspective you are trying to convey, they might not see the reasoning for making that change either. A hundred percent. Yeah. And sometimes it's just not wanting to admit that they're that you that you messed up or that you saw the wrong take and I think that there's also a big fear of being canceled and it's you know sometimes it's just own your mistake a lot of times if you own it it's it's just so much better people make mistakes we're human beings that's why they put erasers on pencils you know just own exactly. up to it <laughs> so. so let's chat a bit about your most recent article the long and storied history of rape kits. I think when it comes to the topic of rape kits, which we know in Canada as sexual assault evidence kits, a lot of people still don't entirely understand what goes into that process Mm. following sexual assault should you choose to report through a hospital or health center. So my first question for you is, 
if you can talk us through what a sexual assault evidence kit is as they are used here in North America. So before we jump into what is included in a sexual assault evidence kit, can you walk us through a little bit of the history that you go through in this article? Absolutely. Um, This is an interesting, I had no idea when I was researching into sexual assault evidence kits and rape kits as they're known, usually more, more widely known, that there was this bit of a controversy over who created the first evidence kit. So the very first sexual assault evidence kit is called the Vutillo uh, co- evidence, sorry, the Vutillo evidence collection kit for sexual assault examination. And it was named after Sergeant Louis Vitillo, who was a sergeant in Chicago, as well as in a micro analyst in the crime lab chief microanalyst, I should say, in the crime lab. And as somebody else, it was actually a New York Times article, did a real deep dive into this and found that it was actually the an activist named Martha Marty Goddard, who was the person who really created the kit and did the majority of the work for this. So it was really an interesting um, history piece to dive into. And she founded the Citizens Committee for Victim Assistance in Chicago in 1974. This was to tackle the way that the collection was currently being done, the collection of trace evidence for sexual assault cases. She worked very closely with youth and children and was finding so uh, like a high number of disclosures of sexual abuse and incest with these children and youth. And this is what sort of sparked her to get into this area and wanting to push for a change. And as she was going through, she was finding um, if the trace evidence was even collected, because in the 70s, we have to remember that there was still this big stigma around what a rape oh, was. Yeah. It, it, and it's the more you go through it, the, <laughs> the worse it gets. <laughs> but they had so many laws and corroboration laws and um, any sort of evidence that they wanted to collect had to be following through what the protocols of what they believed was a rape. So if somebody presented themselves to a hospital to get a kit done and the doctors didn't feel that this was a rape because there was no evidence of bruising on their body on their person if there was no uh, mm. if they felt that they weren't virtuous if they were not fitting the standard of of what a victim should look like or be acting like so if they weren't hysterical if they weren't screaming the place down if they weren't sobbing this was not an actual rape this is you know having a <laughs> a bad case of regret And so they wouldn't even go through with an evidence collection. Those that did go through with the evidence collection, it was so haphazard. There were, as Marty actually said, and I'll read a quote from it because it's it's quite interesting. She went to one of the crime labs and she just said, what do you need? What do you need when when evidence is coming in? And they said, we don't get evidence. Sometimes people try and they take two slides with swabs from, say, the vagina or the mouth and or the rectum, 
they put it on slides, they make the slides, then they rubber band them together and they're face to face. So there goes that, it's worthless. We don't get hair, we don't get fingernail scrapings, nothing's marked to tell you what's vagina, what is the rectum, they don't get decent clothing evidence. So everything is just, it, it's, it's a mess. There's no actual protocol, there's no actual practice. And it wasn't the fault of the hospitals because they were never really told what they needed to collect and how to collect exactly. it. So she came up with and created this kit in order for having this proper collection. So she worked with advocates and she worked with law enforcement and she worked with the crime labs in order to come up with the best way to collect this trace evidence. And also in the meantime, change the way that sexual assault was being treated and change the laws and change, you know, wanting to actually get these cases treated as opposed to it just being, it's just a woman's delusion kind of thing. So mm -hmm. she really wanted to, and she changed a lot with it. She really revolutionized the way that sexual assault cases were treated and uh, moved forward from the 70s. Um, it didn't happen until about 76 when she created a prototype she brought it in to Sergeant Louis Vitillo and allegedly he rejected the idea initially, but then he ended up building a prototype and brought it to her attention and said, this is the way it should look and this is how it should be, but it had to have his name on it. So that's why it was created as the Vitillo Evidence Sexual Collection Kit for Sexual Assault Examinations. And it was the first standardized rape kit for collecting trace evidence. And by the 78, they were trying to get funding because they had to put them together. And there was no funding available for this area. Most of the funding would go to the YWCA or Girl Guides. No one really wanted to talk about sexual violence, child abuse, domestic violence. These are not things that they wanted to talk about, let alone fund. So she was approached, and this is this is a great story. She was approached by Margaret Standish, who was the executive director who ran the Playboy Foundation. And they granted them $10,000 to make these kits. And even though she was receiving pushback from the women's movement for partnering with this magazine that objectified women, she accepted the money. She wasn't getting the money from anyone else. And they ended up um, assisting, the graphic designers assisted with creating the packaging and they put a call out to volunteers. So they got seniors, they had vets, people came out and assembled these kits. And what is in the wow. kits, yeah, it's super, it's awesome to hear. It's like the, hist the history itself is so inspiring to hear as a survivor and just an advocate as well. And hearing you describe it, it almost feels like something we should see on the big screen or something like that. It almost doesn't even seem real. It's so true. And I'm still shocked that after that New York Times article came out that no one has even, there isn't even like whispers of this, or at least it hasn't been made publicly. Maybe there's whispers of it, of making this into a movie or a documentary, because this woman is, is so inspiring. And so many things that she said, I can tell you, if you haven't seen, it is a um, oral history and let me find it here for you. It is the, it's an oral history interview from 2003 of the crime victim assistance field. And she speaks very candidly about her work, her research and everything that she was um, 
all the advocacy that she was doing for this. And I highly recommend it because it is in so inspiring to watch. She's just, she was just an incredible woman and just, she did not take the credit for this. And it wasn't about taking the credit. It was about making sure that survivors were getting what they needed and getting the justice that they needed. And the kits were so by 1980, once they hit and they were in the hospitals and the hospital staff were being trained on how to use them, they were being commended as a vital element in prosecuting sexual assault cases. And it was because courts, judges, uh, juries, they like forensic evidence because unlike evidence that is presented, testimony that is presented from a witness, a complainant, a defendant. It's not biased. It's it's facts. It's there in black mm. and white. And so that's why they that's why there's such a push for the sexual assault evidence kits in the 1980s stating that, you know, 25% um they found 25% more usable evidence for rape cases that came from hospitals that had the kits. So it it's incredible to to see the response to it. And of course, by 1987, the trademark um, had basically expired. And then the following year, there's dozens of manufacturers that have created very similar kits. And as of today, I can't even count how many kit manufacturers there are. And basically, most of it is still very similar to that original kit. They've just been increasing in uh, better technology for them, better swabs, better cases, better um, ways of utilizing how to write down the instructions. So instead of having it in a manual, a lot of them are on the individual envelopes, very clearly labeled. This is step one, step two, step three. So they have evolutionized in a way, but there hasn't been too, too much movement. Yeah. So unfortunately, in that case, most of these kits are created um, specifically for those in the medical field or for law enforcement um, in terms of smaller kits that are called early evidence kits. And those ones I found by uh, <laughs> by chance when I was in London with the Acumen Group for um, lectures in the fall of 2022. And we happened to speak to London Met Police those from the sexual offenses investigative team. And they were telling us that they have early evidence kits. And these early evidence kits or EEKs are non-intimate. They are able to, if an officer um, comes up on a scene or is called to a scene of an alleged rape, they are able to speak to the survivor and able to get an early capture of evidence and that would be either urinalysis, it could be a mouth swab. Um, it's something that they're able to take with them. And every single first responding officer, every car has an early evidence kit in it. They also have seat covers if they have to transport the victim, the survivor to the hospital or the havens is what they're called in, in London, the sexual assault centers. And it was interesting hearing this because from Toronto, and I use Toronto as an example because it is a major city. <laughs> and 
because of this, you would think that there are more centers because mm-hmm. of the population size. We already know if it's not big in the city centers, the chances of them being available in the rural areas are are slim. So it's shocking that, yeah, it's shocking that Toron- Toronto being a city of exactly. population of almost 4,000 people, uh, 4,000, listen to me, 4 million people. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Monday, everyone. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Four million people. We only have really three centers. Um, Obviously, Women's College has partner sites with their individual within their network that you can also present to. But it is a mobile mobile, uh, sexual assault nurse examiner that will come to that location. They're not physically on the site. And the kits are not physically on the site. Now, I don't know if that's changed from when I spoke to them in um, late 2020. But from my understand, or 2021, I should say, um, they are traveling out to those locations to see uh, anyone who is presenting there that needs a kit done. And that would mean that if they're at Sunnybrook Hospital, for example, and they get a call that there is now somebody at St. Joseph's, they'll still have to finish the kit at Sunnybrook, take the kit back to Women's College or... Um, hand it off to the police if that's the the method that the survivor has chosen, and then get another kit from women's college and then travel again to the next site. So this is it's not necessarily just because they have those right. partner sites that that means that you are able to see somebody in an in a timely manner. As we know, sane nurses are there's a massive shortage right now, so it's. Um, it's nationwide, a yeah. nationwide, yes, and actually globally, as we found out in London. Exactly, yes. So in London, they have a population of nine million, and they have three sites, and it's the Havens, and that just blew my mind. And speaking wow. to um, the the staff of with that work with the uh, sexual offenses investigative team, they had said. You know, they are able to manage the current demand for rape exams based on these three havens. And for us listening to this, we know, sure, you can probably manage if they're fully staffed right now, you could probably manage the demand because you're not really taking into account that many people are not willing to travel two hours to get to a haven. So they're just not going to go. So it's not, yeah, so it's not necessarily that. Exactly. This is the only demand that you have or the amount of people who are showing up. It's more about they're not going to get there in the first place. So you don't really know what the demand is because the majority of people, if they get to their site that is closest to them, a hospital, and they're told, we can't do that here, you need to go to one of the havens, and that's two hours away, they're not going to go. So with the EEKs that you were introduced to during your time in London, Mm -hmm. how do EEKs play into that element of accessibility, even in the major centers? So for them, as they stated, if if the havens were fully staffed and it would be able to manage the current demand, but what they know is that they don't have full staffing, they're not fully staffed, which means that they want to capture early evidence as much as possible in in order to have, as they said, something in place that gives you 24-7 coverage. So that's where the EEKs come into play in London, in the sense that they may not be able to get the survivor to the havens within 
the time frame or have a, a a kit done within two hours, but they will be able to capture some form of evidence, especially if they feel that it is a drug facilitated rape, that they will get catch that with the urinalysis that they're able to use from the EEKs. So these are that's how they're trying to it's a complementary yeah. to the, the forensic exams. It's not meant to replace it. However, a victim or survivor is more than able to say, I don't want to get the full exam done. I just want the evidence kit that you have. That's all I want, that EEK. I don't want anything else done. So it can be something without it having to be the full process. And it is not meant to replace it. It's meant to be complementary. Now, for any folks who have never heard of an EEK before, which I'm sure is many of the listeners, what is included in an EEK? Who conducts the EEK? What are the options available? And where is it currently being offered in a global perspective? So this is something I'm still currently researching. So the only areas that I can really respond to with that would be London has the EEK, which is considered their non-intimate kits, which means that everything that they have in their kits will not are not meant to be for the genitalia. So it is they there's no need for the survivor to remove their clothing unless they are um, using the urinalysis. And that is something this survivor can do on their own. So they don't need anybody watching them. They have in the London police issue based EEK, they have um, two urinalysis cups. One is meant to be done immediately. And the second one after an hour, at least an hour, they have sterile tissue paper to be used. They also have a mouth swab. So that one is usually conducted by the police, but they can assist um, the survivor if the survivor really wants to take it. Those are usually to be used um, if for cases where oral sex is alleged or suspected, and they also have a mouth rinse. So that's in the the London-based EEK. Now, in the other ones that I'm looking at in Australia, those ones are usually at the hospitals, which is another really interesting element. So if you present as a um, survivor to the hospital and need to get an, uh, a sexual assault evidence kit done, if they know it's going to take longer than two hours, they will suggest having an early evidence kit done. And what they have in interesting. those... Yes. And this is actually really, <laughs> as you said, interesting. Very so, interesting. So this is North South Wales, Australia. And uh, the report came out, I believe, in September 2022, and I think it's going to be reviewed in September 2025. So it'll be interesting to see how this comes about, what the um, findings from this is. But the reason is, and I'll just read it to you from the document, an example of why early evidence collection is so important. A woman presented at an NSW health emergency department following a recent sexual assault the patient used an early evidence kit to collect a vulval wipe four hours after the assault. A doctor subsequently undertook a medical and forensic examination 12 and a half to 14 hours after the assault and collected low vaginal and vulval swabs. The patient had showered and urinated while waiting for the examination. While the swabs taken during the medical and forensic examination did not yield any male biological material, so that's the one 
from the 12 and a half to 14 hours after the assault. The, prof the early evidence kit yielded one sperm, which resulted in a full male DNA profile. It was uploaded to the DNA database, linked to a male convicted offender, and two crime scene profiles from Queensland. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it just goes wow. to show why it's so important because some people will say, well, she did shower and she used the washroom because a lot of times some, you have to use the washroom. <laughs> you, it, to exactly. Ask you can't wait 14, like they said, 12 to 14 hours later, you can't wait that many hours to use the bathroom. 100%. And in that case, you may lose more evidence over time. So having that early collection is is vital. And having it available Absolutely. in a hospital, to me, is brilliant. And having it available, this is something that can be done at any hospital. So even if the current hospitals don't have this kit available or don't have the full uh, sexual assault evidence kits available or the SANE nurses available, this is something that they can have because this is most of this is done by the survivor. They're able to go into a quiet area and perform this um, early evidence collection. And I think that that is just incredible and empowering and gives them a bit of autonomy and gives them a little bit of comfort. They're also able to remove the clothes that they have on if they need to and put them into bags and take that with them. So it's, it, it's part of the process. And again, it's complimentary. It doesn't have to be the only thing, but it also can be the only thing. So if they choose that they only want to do the early evidence kit, then that's, it's their decision. Absolutely. And I, I mean, based on what you've shared here, I, of course, have knowledge of EEKs, but for folks who are listening who have never heard of this before, I would I remember my initial reaction to hearing more about what early evidence kits provide to survivors. And for me, fundamentally, it was just that sense of agency and being able to decide what happens next. I remember uh, following m my assault, your initial reaction is just to shower. You just want so badly to clean yourself. Mm -hmm. And we so frequently hear of survivors being told that they have to wait five hours, 10 hours, in some cases over 24 hours before they can shower in order to preserve that evidence. So for myself, my initial response and reaction to hearing about EEKs was just that it is going to completely give that power back to survivors in determining what happens next should they choose that they wish to report their case and collect forensic evidence. It at least gives you that sense of dignity back that, that you can be sort of in control of what happens next versus completely being at the mercy of being deemed a priority in, in, in many regards. Yeah, absolutely. And in these cases, these particular early evidence kits, again, similar to the sexual assault evidence kits, they are geared towards medical and law enforcement. So there is other early evidence kits. And funny enough, when I was, again, starting to research before I even knew about these early evidence kits in London, my editor and I were discussing and she had said, 
I wonder how long it's going to take before there are at-home rape kits, because we think about the ancestry kits that you can get ordered, the ones that now that you're able to, you know, see how your metabolism is, you know, you order a kit Mm -hmm. and you just, you know, swab inside your mouth and send that off and, or spit into a cup and send that off. And she said, I wonder how long it's going to take before these become on the market. And especially in cases of domestic violence where sexual assault is occurring, the person, the survivor may not be able to leave and they may not be able to get to a hospital within that, you know, frame of 96 hours in order to get the kit done. So having something at their, at their fingertips that they might be able to have and store or do something with may be, you know, it it sounds, why wouldn't we want to do this? Um, But there is the first thing that everybody is going to ask is, but what about chain of custody? What about how do we know that it's from the the survivor that they did the collection properly, you know, with the sexual assault evidence kits that you have at the hospitals or the EEKs with the police? They are you the chain of custody is very clear because there's a, a massive protocol that comes with that. There's signing and every single handoff is signed off and very clear where it is and where it's going. How do you do that with evidence that you're self-collecting? And the problem with that thinking, and I admit that I had the same kind of thinking initially, because of course, as a fan of Law and Order SVU, it's always thinking, (laughs) but what about chain of custody? What about the evidence? And the truth is, um, we wouldn't think of this with any other evidence that any other crime victim would be presenting to the police. If they're bringing anything that they have with them, a bloody knife that they that they had from an assault, and they bring it in, are the police going to say, well, how do I know that you brought this in? You know, like, we're not questioning. Right. It's, they're going to accept it. And we also have to be very clear that evidence, no matter what the evidence is, every piece of evidence that comes to a court, it is admitted by the judge. So the judge decides what evidence is going to be admitted admissible in court. So an early, any, any evidence that you self present, including text messages, including voicemails, uh, pieces of clothing, those things can be admitted or not admitted. And believe it or not, even sexual assault evidence kits, depending on the situation, it's no guarantee that they're going to be entered. The chances are higher because obviously you have multiple different people who are signing off on it. You have the sexual assault forensic nurse, you have the the police officer, you have the crime lab. But again, nothing is 100% for sure that it's going to be entered into the court system itself as evidence. So mm-hmm. there's a team um, in New York that I again stumbled upon after I came back from London, and it is Lita Health. And they had created an early evidence kit It's um, for survivors, by survivors, and it's meant to meet survivors where they are. So this gives them the autonomy to collect the evidence themselves. And they have worked with lawyers. They've worked with SANE nurses. They have SANE nurses on staff. It's done in a telehealth way. It's done in a virtual way. And they use that based off of everything being virtual during the uh, pandemic. How can we help survivors who may not be able to even get into a hospital now? How do we get them to help self-collect? So their kit has three swabs. 
And they are very clear that if you do decide to send your kit to them, they have a lab that will process it. It is not part of the backlog that's in the States right now. Um, it is usually done within, I think it was one to two weeks. I think it was a little bit longer during the pandemic, but it is done. It is tested, but it is not uploaded into CODIS, which is the um, central database for DNA collection. It is not there because the only evidence that can be entered into CODIS would have to be submitted through the police. It has to go as through law enforcement. So this is a... Um, they're very clear about that. Um, it would be interesting, though, to see if somebody was to present and they followed the steps and they had, you know, the the detailed instructions, which they do have, and it's connected to an app and it walks them through step by step. And there's barcodes that they have to scan. It's very well thought out. And most of the questions that most people would have about chain of custody, they've they've hit they hit everyone there. So it'd be very interesting to, to see if somebody were to um, take this kit, self-collect their evidence and, and take it to the police to file a report, if that would be accepted, what would be the next steps? How would it go? Um, it could be an absolute game changer, especially, like I said, for those victims who are unable to leave the house who are unable to get to a hospital because there there are none in their area or they have to get on a helicopter to fly out to the latest to the closest one to them or you know well, now with your experience with project engage 416 is that kind of kit something that could also be beneficial for individuals who are trafficked folks working in sex work is that something that could also be readily available and applicable to those communities as well absolutely because again we have to challenge the stereotypes of what sexual assault is and what rape is and who it affects and where it happens because there's so many that believe that an assault will happen and it usually, you know, it's, it's a stranger and we know that it isn't. We know that the majority of cases, they aren't strangers. They are people that, you know, um, it's exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's not always a case that someone is assaulted and able to just get up and go to the nearest hospital or to the sexual assault evidence, uh, sexual assault, uh, center and actually get one of these kits done. It's just not always plausible. There are many people who cannot leave their situations, including, as you stated, sex trafficking victims. They, they can't leave. It's going to be very difficult for them to get to a hospital. Um, it's, it's something that would absolutely benefit these communities. And it's a, it would be interesting, again, to see how these kits can be, and, and especially the kits that are in the UK, um, those ones are usually, again, mostly done with the, with police and law enforcement involvement. Yeah. yeah. It would be interesting to see, even if they had evidence kits similar to the Lita health early evidence kits for the police to be able to hand them to the survivor and say, okay, here's, the, here's the app. Here's how you go about it. Here's a private room. You go in. I'm waiting right here. We're going to sign off on it when you're done. 
would that be something that we can do? I think that there is a, um, we, there's been some amazing progress made since the seventies when Marty Goddard created the very first sexual assault evidence kit. But again, there's a lot of gaps still. And because of that, it's because they don't really want to build on it. There's not really a, a scene wanting to build into those gaps to fill those gaps. It's, this is the kit. This is what we need to use. This is how we do it. Um, they, they need a bit more of that creativity and innovation that the Lita Health team has come up with to fill those gaps and try to meet the survivors where they are and also understand that not every survivor wants to go the route of taking criminal justice. They don't want to go that route. Maybe they want restorative justice. Maybe they just want to have the autonomy to collect their own evidence, even if it's that they never want to do anything with it. They just want to feel that they have some autonomy back over their own bodies again. And right. that's so important. And why wouldn't we want to give survivors the autonomy back that someone else took from them? So we want to give that back exactly. to them. Why wouldn't we want to support any form of an early evidence kit, especially if it's one that a survivor is able to do with the, with the assistance and the proper protocols and proper procedures? Why wouldn't we want to do that? Now, question related to what's currently being used in the UK and Australia. Mm -hmm. There are, based on what you've shared and what, what we've talked about in other conversations, there are some differences between the EEKs being used, again, in collaboration with law enforcement and medical professionals, and the EEKs created by Leda Health that are self-evidence collection kits. Mm -hmm. Within the UK and Australia, are those kits, or, or rather, do those kits require you to have involvement with law enforcement? For example, here in Canada and the United States as well, you have the choice to choose whether your evidence can be held onto for a period of time or whether you want to start the process of accessing justice through the legal system right away. Is that something that's available to the survivor when they use EEKs within those countries uh, with the collaboration with law enforcement and medical professionals? Or is it always an immediate, this kickstarts the reporting process and accessing justice through the legal system? I believe when it comes to the London police and what their uh, EEKs, how they're set up, normally it's that someone has called the police in order for the police to come out and they have the kits. So I believe that while they may take the evidence kit and they can transfer them to the Havens, um, there is still the possibility that they may the survivor may not want to go through with um, pressing charges or wanting to go through the, like putting through a statement, it's probably a little bit harder because of the fact that you've already called the police and that's how they came out with the kit. Um, exactly. there probably still is a, a way that they don't have to go forward with the report. And in that case, the kit will be, if it's held with the Havens, it's held with the Havens. If it's, um, with the police, I believe it'll be destroyed after a certain amount of retention time, the same as it is here. Um, okay. but with, again, with the ones that are done in the hospitals, including here, and I think that it would be the same in Australia, the early evidence kits being that the survivor presented at a hospital setting and not to the police, 
there is a, a different protocol. So they would go through with the early evidence kit. They would go through with the sexual assault evidence kit if they wanted to continue on. And that would be retained on site for a certain number of months. If they chose to go forward and report, then obviously the kit would be transferred to the police and would be gone to their crime labs. Other than that, it would be um, destroyed, I guess, after a certain amount of retention. I know here it's six months. If the Mm -hmm. um, survivor does not want to go through with it, I believe it's a six month that they destroy the kit, which to me is not long enough. In my personal opinion, sometimes it can take someone definitely not at least a year. Well, if you think about it as well, most sexual assault centers have a wait period for counseling services that is a minimum of six months, upward to eighteen months or more. Mm-hmm. So, if that is your only access point to healing resources, six months is really not that much time to start the process of seeking support from a, a professional in order to process that trauma and then make an informed decision about what really is best for you and your mental health moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it really goes to show why funding is so necessary for this because if you're going to, you know, it's not just about the kits being accessible. It's not just about the kits being available in every hospital. Obviously, that's a starting point. It's what should be. If it's not the full kits, it should be EEKs. It should be something. But it's not the only thing. It's the sane nurses. It's the safe nurses. It's ones who are trained with um, in trauma responses and how to properly speak to and help and encourage with compassion to these survivors who are showing up, not to mention the resources, not to mention the care, the aftercare. It's not just about what happens at the hospital initially with the acute care that you're getting, it's long-term. And if you're going to have to wait 18 months before you're getting proper resources and, and counseling services, and then you decide, I want to you know, I do want to go forward and press charges. I want to go through the criminal justice system. Well, your kit's been destroyed. Oh, so where are the storage facilities? Like, do we need to increase the storage facilities? Are they running out of space? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a, a big multi-tiered issue. It's not it it's it would be very naive to to think it's just one one thing and it's done, right? Like it's like, oh well, we just need to give evidence right. kits and have those done or have three assault centers and that should be sufficient. It's it's not that simple. There's so many layers to it. And and I'm glad that you shared that because that's definitely been a discussion that we've had with folks working in both sexual assault centers, the medical community, law enforcement mm-hmm. since the release of the silenced report. And I think that was maybe a, a very common misconception in us conducting that research. And when I say us, I'm referring to She Matters, but I I think folks saw that we conducted this research and we're talking about access to forensic evidence collection without really understanding maybe that we did share other recommendations as well very much aligned with your points that you've just shared and I know this is a conversation that you and I have very frequently (laughs) Um, so I'm just scratching at the surface of pretty much our our daily weekly conversation (laughs) but that that's 
really important for people to, to grasp is that this is so deeply layered and access to evidence kits is so important because as you've shared throughout, it's not being provided to the to the extent it needs to be within urban settings or rural and remote settings within Canada and within other parts of North America and even in a global context as well. But we're specifically going to speak about Canada as we're both Canadians and that's where our specific advocacy is is driven mm-hmm. at present. But in addition to this access, we really do need those supports for sexual assault centers, storage facilities, if that need be, implementing new innovative approaches, perhaps like EEKs that are being used in London and in Australia, where we have very similar justice systems. Yes. So I, I love that you've touched on all of these points because, again, so often in this sector, and this is something that we haven't always talked about or rarely ever talked about on the podcast um, or just in general, sometimes because we rely so heavily on different funding sources and all have different approaches to doing things and our, even our perspective of what survivors need the most leads organizations to not stand united on issues as much as we really should be. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that a little bit with this particular issue. But I think from the work that we've done together with SOAR Initiative and She Matters and just the relationship that we've built over the last uh, year, oh my gosh, it's almost two years now. Wow. Um it's really become clear that we all need to stand united on these issues because fundamentally we want our systems to improve. And so that leads me to my last question for you here today. And we will be having more discussions about access throughout our access series and talking more with Christy about different topics that relate to sexual violence uh, here in Canada. What is your vision for the future of access in Canada over the next three years, five years, and even further on to the future? Okay, so I'm going to start with the with the long term. So obviously, the vision for SOAR initiative is going to be a world where sexual violence is eradicated. And survivors have access to all the resources and support and justice that they deserve for long-term care, for long-term recovery. That's something that is the ultimate goal long-term. But of course, having that happen in our lifetime is most likely not going to happen. It could potentially happen in our kids' lifetime, maybe even in their kids' lifetime. But for the short-term... um. Obviously, I would love to see some form of access to a evidence kit, whether it be a sexual assault evidence kit, the traditional ones that are in hospitals, whether it be something similar to the EEKs that they're using in London or in Australia, or even a version that Lita Health have created. That would be ultimate to have that in the next three to five years, to have survivors able to access this 
equitably. So it would be able to be accessed by those in rural and remote areas. Those um, also those in the city centers that are unable to travel to the specific locations that the sexual assault or domestic violence care centers where they are currently located. Um, but also, I think in order for that to happen, we have to change the language on how we are speaking about sexual violence. And if we are saying that survivors, um, if we keep using terms of he said, she said, when it comes to court cases, all court cases are two sides. There's always two sides to a court case, no matter what. An attempted murder case, there is a defense and there is the prosecution or the crown. There is the defendant that's saying, I didn't do this. And there's somebody who's saying, yes, you did. And it's, <laughs> we never say, oh, this is 100%. Yeah. We never say in an attempted murder case, well, this is a real he said, he said. We'd never say that. We only <laughs> ever say it when it comes to sexual violence and domestic violence. And there's a reason for that, that I'm actually now really exploring in my work with Acumen Group. And it's coming through with this. Um, it's coming through with a eugenic lens and a eugenic ideology, because through my research, what I'm finding is that for eugenicists, particularly historical eugenicists, they treated sexual violence as evidence that victims were mentally defective, that it's them that were basically bringing it upon themselves. So there's case studies hmm. of uh, teenagers who, of teen who presented herself to her uh, bishop and told him that she was raped by her brother and she was deemed an idiot, like that terminology. She was then brought in to get uh, sterilized. So it's it, the, the, the way that, oh, wow. yeah. And the thing is with eugenics, a lot of these ideologies are still being used to create policies and practices uh, based on this survival of the fittest or, or creating and breeding this ultimate, um, the, the better generation, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and it's, right. it's interesting coming through in this lens when you're reading about it and then seeing how we still talk about sexual violence survivors and domestic violence survivors, that we're still putting the onus on them, that we're still putting it that, you know, they're not to be believed and they must have done something to bring it upon themselves. And, you know, all of those kind the of blame, the blame, it's still there and it's very upsetting. And then when you have these evidence kits introduced and saying, well, this is the perfect thing because this is techno scientific, it's a techno scientific witness, it's unbiased, it's then why aren't they available everywhere? If this is something that can change the course of how we are dealing with sexual assault, why are they not everywhere? And again, it comes down to because of the way that we are viewing the survivors of these particular crimes. So that's where I'm going forward right now with Acumen and my writing and my research and seeing where that line, how can we connect that line? Because it's it's quite shocking when you're reading about it and, and hearing how um, survivors of, of sexual assault are being treated and, and spoken about and um, like it's almost as though they're bringing it upon themselves and then correlating it with how we are, even how people today are speaking about survivors. So I think in order for us to even get to access, we have to really understand and change the way that we are looking at sexual assault and 
sexual violence and domestic violence? That was a really long answer. <laughs> I <laughs> No, it was amazing. Okay. And and I completely agree with all of your points and look forward to seeing what's next with your writing for Acumen Group and for all that's to come for SOAR Initiative and She Matters collaboration and just all the work that you're doing independently as well. This is the first of many podcast interviews together, (laughs) I am certain. But thank you so much for coming on today, talking with us a little bit more, giving your introduction. As I said, you're going to be an individual who's going to drop in frequently in this space. So I'm so glad that our listeners got that intro to learn a little bit more about you and see where your passion lies and just learn more about the really the foundations of accessibility, the history of sexual assault evidence kits and learn more about you because you are just such an inspiring human and advocate. And so I'm really grateful that you shared this space with me today. Thank you. Honestly, thank you so much for having me. I was going to say the exact same thing about you. It's your, the report, the She Matters report, the silenced um, report, I should say. And you know, just knowing that it was all volunteers and the amount of work that you did with this is just so inspiring to me and was it's really what has fueled me to go forward with this and really put my put my mark in getting into advocacy so I really have you and the She Matters team to thank for this because it's incredible work that you've done and you're all badasses and (laughs) it's amazing and inspiring and so thank you for having me wonderful well all the things that we've talked about today in our episode, which I know it was a lot. We will share the links in our show notes. And I'll also get Christy to share some of her favorite SVU episodes with you all. Maybe we'll break down your top three and share those in the show notes as well, because I know that is something that our listeners love and connect with. And we'll just leave you with Lots of good vibes as you continue on in your day. Um, And again, thank you, Christy, for joining us on the She Matters podcast. Thank you so much.